0: Welcome to a public lecture podcast from the University of Bath. In this Charter Day lecture, Dr Alexander Keller from the University of Bath's Department of European Studies and Modern Languages talks about biological research and its possible applications for good or ill. Illustrating a track record over a century long of biological developments being put to uses outside their original purpose, he proposes the creation of an international framework agreement to ensure that we learn from the mistakes of the past. Now it's my great pleasure to introduce Dr Alex Keller. He's a senior lecturer in politics and international relations at the Department of European Studies and Modern Languages. He's also the Director of Studies for the Euromasters course and the Masters of Research in European Politics. He's been at the university, well, he's just coming into his third year at the university now, and his previous positions have included posts at the Centre for International Security and Cooperation at Stanford University and at the Peace Research Institute in Frankfurt. His research interests include international security, international relations theory, US foreign and security policy, and international public health and hopefully he will give you a bit of an insight today into one of the many areas of research going on at the university that is truly world-class. He'll be speaking on the topic of cure or weapon towards a new ethics of biological research, and if I could just ask you to keep any questions you may have to the end of the presentation, there'll be an opportunity for you to ask them then. But without further ado, I'd like to introduce Alex to give his presentation. Thank you. Thank you.
1: I'd like to thank the uh, organizers, uh, Sean, uh, Gavin, and his colleagues who have uh, put this program together for inviting me to to give what is perhaps a bit of an unusual uh, presentation in in two ways, basically. Uh, First of all, it is not the presentation of a completed research project where you have everything nicely wrapped up, all the, the findings already printed on glossy paper and so on and so forth. It's a research project that we started about half a year ago, and that has uh, several more years to go. So it's more like a problem description and how we approach the problem and uh, why we think uh, this is uh, a worthwhile and interesting uh, endeavor to to be involved in. Secondly, the uh, presentation may strike you as a bit uh, odd, perhaps, um, because it deals with uh, cures, medicine, supposedly, uh, or weapons, uh, and uh, that presentation is given by somebody from the Department of European Studies in Modern Languages. So you may wonder, how, how does all that fit together? And uh, I think I'll, I'll have to, to leave you wondering how that all fits together, because that would be a presentation in and of itself if I wanted to explain all that. Now, what I thought I'd do instead is uh, actually take you through three steps in my very short presentation. First of all, talk a little bit about the, what I see as a paradigm shift in the life sciences, so addressing the question, what is new? Why, why are we doing this? Secondly, talk about past misuse patterns and an increasing understanding of human physiology at the molecular level, and that goes back to the genetics and genomics revolution and what have you and talk about a few of the problems resulting from this, misuse problems of all these wonderful new things that cancer research and what have you are providing uh, us to better the human condition. And the third point I'd like to address is uh, what we should basically do about it, and that's what we in our research project call uh, developing a new dual-use bioethics. Bioethics has been around for two decades and a bit, depending on how you count and uh, it is our impression in this research project, uh, the group of people coming together work on, on these issues, that in most, if not all, courses and understandings of bioethics, this dual use character of the life sciences, that they can be used for good but also for, for malign purposes, has been systematically excluded. And we think that needs to change, given the paradigm shift in the life sciences. Right. What is this paradigm shift about. And I thought I'd present a uh, use, uh, this somewhat lengthy quote, but I present what a colleague of mine at Harvard University has to say about it. And he stresses, he stressed already about a decade ago, as a matter of fact, that our ability to modify fundamental life processes uh, will continue at a rapid pace, and through this we will increasingly become able To manipulate processes of cognition, development, reproduction, and inheritance, as he puts it. Now, what this will lead to is that the militaries and the terrorists around the world who want to misuse these advances will no longer only be able to, as they were in the past, either kill people on the battlefield or civilians, if it's terrorist use we are concerned about, but actually modify behavior. And this is down to a much better understanding these days of the regulatory circuits, the regulatory systems in the human body. A much better understanding about the receptors in the nervous system, in the endocrine system, in the immune system in particular. And our concern about these developments and their misuse potential stems, as I uh, mentioned a, a moment ago, from past or patterns of past misuse. So one of the colleagues of mine involved in this project uh, I'm I'm talking to you about has done a a survey looking through scientific breakthroughs as they occurred since the back end of the 19th century in what might loosely be termed the life sciences and has found that all of these, without any exception, were what we say is misused, in offensive state biological weapons programs throughout the 20th century. That begins with bacteriology in the, in the 1890s and runs all the way through genetic engineering, uh, which was utilized by the then Soviet Union uh, in the 1980s and uh, early 1990s in its offensive biological weapons programs. So the question arises, what might misuse then actually look like or or lead to today if we think about all these fancy things of targeting specific cancer cells in the human body uh, through targeted delivery systems, uh, through specific bioactive chemical compounds that researchers these days are able to inject into or insert into the human body for beneficial purposes, admittedly. But our concern is that a lot of these activities are going on without anybody actually trying to monitor what the misuse potential might be and taking adequate steps to counter such misuse potential. I have just one brief example here uh, that I'd like to use, not to uh, give you an exhaustive overview of this uh, vast topic, obviously, but to illustrate the point I'm trying to make. If we look first at the top half of of this slide here, uh, it is uh, a cutout from one of the most respected scientific publications uh, that you can come across, Nature. And the piece uh, I have uh, up here uh, was published in June 2005, and it simply says, Oxytocin increases trust in humans. Now, you may wonder, why is this relevant to what I'm talking to you about today? The simple matter of the fact is that oxytocin is one of a large number of so-called neuropeptides, bioregulators, we all have in our bodies. These bioregulators are responsible for blood temperature, wake-sleep modes of the human body, for a whole host of moods that we feel feel ourselves in, and many other regulatory functions of the human body that just happen, which just happened, without us realizing it. And oxytocin is one of these bioregulators. And it becomes expressed at particularly large levels uh, when women have given birth. And it is responsible for the bonding between the mother and the newborn child. And that has been known uh, in certain circles of the medical profession, obviously, for quite a while. Now, again, the question then, why is this finding reported uh, by uh, Swiss scientists in a very respectable journal, why is that of importance? Well, what they found out, and they have the experimental evidence to support their findings, is that if you produce oxytocin synthetically and spray it in the air. Actually, it doesn't only work between mother and child. It works between complete strangers. So uh, next time you go in a uh, car shop uh, and uh, wonder why all of a sudden you feel this empathy towards the car salesperson (laughs) and are all of a sudden tempted to part with 10 grand more than you originally planned on spending for a new car you may wonder whether a bit of oxytocin is in the air. And this is only a thought that I'm suggesting you might have because it took only a very short period of time, a couple of years from 2005 until 2007, 2008, until oxytocin became commercially available to be bought over the Internet. And that is the bottom half of uh, this uh, slide here. Uh, So you can buy bottled liquid trust. Right. I hope I got everybody's attention now. (laughs) And let me assure you, this is just the tip of the iceberg of all these bioregulators that are potentially usable for purposes that whoever designed them in the first place, however we... Uh, approach this uh, sort of more f- uh, philosophical topic uh, did not intend for, for, for these bioregulators. And if you look at this webpage, uh, the, the Liquid Trust webpage, uh, the, the sales pitch is actually, well, if you're in marketing, if you're in sales, if you have problems finding a partner, just buy one of our bottles or possibly buy several of our bottles and all your problems will be sorted out. You will be fine. So... Uh, I'm not trying to put too light a touch on this because if we move on from from oxytocin and and think about the whole spectrum of agents that could be potentially used in ways that they aren't intended for originally, um, you may spot uh, a bit to the left of the center of this slide the word fentanyl. Now, fentanyl is is not a bioregulator. Fentanyl falls into a different class of biologically active chemical compounds. But some of you may remember that uh, fentanyl got some uh, press coverage in the latter parts of 2002 when Russian troops used, or Russian security forces used, a uh, fentanyl derivative, it was called back then, to actually storm this theater in Moscow where Chechen rebels or terrorists, whatever your preferred label is, had taken over 700 or over 600 uh, hostages. So, Russian security forces used what is usually uh, presumed to be an an anesthetic for uh, operating theater use, pumped it into this uh, huge space, this theater, and uh, then went in and uh, shot all the, 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 the hostage-takers. So there is a huge variety of these biologically active chemical compounds available that security forces, that the military, are interested in. And uh, I'm a well a qualified pessimist in, in the sense that I'm pretty sure when, whenever something enters the military arsenal... Uh, the the terrorists and the the, the criminals aren't too far behind in trying to catch up on on, on these developments and try to get their hands on on, on these things. So there is a massive problem of technology diffusion we are looking at in in this sense. Now, this is where our project comes in. So don't despair, we we are on the case. Um, We are only six months into this project, as I said. But I think there are three strategies uh, which we uh, will explore in in some depth over the the next few years. I think, first of all, what we need to engage in is the life sciences community. We need to engage with life scientists because you would not believe how high their level of ignorance about the misuse potential of their own work is. This may come as a bit of a surprise because we, we think, well, we... We all know about sort of these fuzzy ideas of the Enlightenment and how we should all be socially aware and, and, and what have you. But as a matter of fact, many of these uh, scientists working at the, 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 the bench level in, in, in labs, uh, they are so absorbed by the work they are doing that the uh, wider societal implications uh, tend to fall through the cracks. And it is our uh, con, uh, conviction that uh, we not only need to get at practicing life scientists, because these are all very busy people, certainly those at the cutting cutting edge of research, but that we need also to look into the uh, possibility to update our bioethics education at university level. So that's one cluster of activities. Obviously it would be asking too much of these poor people uh, who have already a busy working day Uh, to shoulder all of this on their own. So what they need are supportive governance mechanisms, institutional structures at a local but also at a national level. Uh, This can happen through learned societies uh, at a university level, research cluster level. There are plenty of uh, possibilities to do this. And thirdly, and that's where where my own uh, area of uh, research interest uh, really lies, is to look at the international mechanisms, because obviously it's no good if all the British scientists have this awareness and behave accordingly, but if in other parts of the world, rogue scientists are going off and couldn't care less what is done with their work. So this needs to be harmonized at an international level, and that's where where my interest in international treaties, international norms, and international standards of behaviors is coming into the picture. So it is these three uh, ideas that we will be uh, pursuing Over the next uh, few years, and uh, hopefully, uh, you will uh, hear more from uh, from the results or about the results uh, coming out of this project in in the years to come. I think I've more than used up uh, the time allotted to my uh, presentation here, so uh, thank you very much.